Someone asked me at the back of the church this morning, well, are you counting down your days to freedom? <laughs> you know, I kind of have mixed emotions about that. I, I love uh, what I do. I love to speak, love to preach. Um, I tell people I'll preach to anybody that'll walk slow or stand still, but I, won't, I can't chase them down anymore. <laughs> but um, it's just, you know, you come to a place where you realize it's time to slow down. And for me, I know I've told you this, and uh, many of you say I don't believe it, but my next birthday will be my 80th birthday. And um, so I need to slow down a little bit, all right? But uh, next week, I told you I'll be at my high school reunion in Sulphur Springs, hanging around with all those old people. <laughs> Disgusting, I'm telling you. And, <laughs> you know, out of a class of 100, I'm the only preacher that came out of that class. And so it gives me a chance to, you know, when I get there, and we kind of go around the room and we talk, give a ch chance to, you know, to share just a little bit what's going on. Of course, they know now that I am a pastor, have been for, I preached my first sermon in 1966, became a pastor, first church in 1968, so I've been doing this for a while. <clears throat> but I say to my classmates, if any of you need prayer, I'd love to pray with you before this meeting's over. So just come and we'll get over in a corner somewhere. Uh, I prayed with people in the aisle at Dillard's. I prayed with people in the aisle at HUB. I just believe we just don't need to be ashamed about being praying Christians. So, and then the next Sunday, <clears throat> following two weeks from the day, will be my last Sunday here with the title interim pastor. So I hope it's not my last sermon here, because if you don't invite my if you don't invite me back, I'll invite myself back. <laughs> okay, but uh, but by the way, if you either have to miss today or two weeks from today, don't don't miss two weeks from today. Because I'm going to be talking about what was it about Jesus that attracted crowds? Now, you read the New Testament, Jesus attracted crowds. I mean, at one point, he attracted 5,000 people. Really, the Bible says 5,000 men. doesn't talk about the women and children, so there could have been many, many more people there. One time, he was preaching in a house, and it was so full that the only way that they could get the guy in that needed Jesus' touch was to tear a a, a hole in the roof and lower him down. So there was something about Jesus that attracted the crowds. So we're going to look in the Bible and see if we can't discover what those things are. And hopefully we can implement them in, in our own lives and ministry. Once a month, I meet with a group of preachers. Uh, we call it the 20-year group. If you pastored in Waco over 20 years, it's our little fellowship together. And invariably, you know, we'll talk and we'll talk about the church and the condition of the church today. And one of my preacher friends will make a statement that goes something like this. There's nothing wrong with my church that a good revival wouldn't cure. But, you know, we don't talk about that term revival much anymore, do we? I don't see churches scheduling revivals anymore. People don't attend revivals anymore like they used to. But what the church needs today is a good revival. And let me define the word revival. It's God's power and presence in the midst of his people. God's power and his presence in the midst of his people. When you get God's power and presence in the midst of the people, it's not going to be business as usual. It's going to be different. 
if you ask most preachers, well, what's the formula for revival? They're, they're probably going to tell you 2 Chronicles 7.14. Anybody know what that is before I quote it? Okay. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. 2 Chronicles 7.14. But I think you can go back to 1 Chronicles and find a pretty good formula for revival right there before you ever get to the 2 Chronicles. And that's where I want you to turn today. Turn with me, if you would, this morning to... First Chronicles chapter 13. You know, we don't go to the Old Testament too much, as much as we should. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. But uh, there's a lot of truth in the Old Testament. All right, let's begin in the uh, First Chronicles chapter 13, beginning uh, in verse 1. Then David consulted with the captains of the thousands and the hundreds, even with every Leader. Now, let me stop right here. This is a good, a good uh, example of leadership. A good leader will always check with the other leaders and get, get counsel from them. A good pastor will do that. A good pastor will not just make a decision. Off, he, he will check with other leaders. So David did that. Verse 2, David said to all of the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you, and if it is from the Lord our God, let us ascend uh, everywhere to our kinsmen who remain in all the land of Israel. Remember, uh, Israel was scattered at this point. And he said, so, to, uh, so, so also the priests and the Levites who are with them in their cities and with pasture land that, we may meet with us, that they may meet with us. And then verse 3. Let us bring back the ark of God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. Then all the assembly said they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. To understand the significance of what David is talking about when he says, let us bring back the ark. We have to remember that the ark of the covenant represented the power and presence of God the power and presence of God. It was so uh, sacred that uh, when the temple was built, it was placed in the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was the most sacred, the most uh, holy place in, in the temple. It had three courts, as you know, the outer court, the inner court, and the Holy of Holies. Well, the Holy of Holies was so sacred that uh, only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies. And he was only allowed to enter the Holy of Holies one day a year. And that was on the Day of Atonement. He'd go in and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And if God accepted that, then the sins of the people were covered for another year. Now, when Jesus died on the cross, you remember the veil of the temple was rent in two. And it's no longer a matter of their sins being covered for a year, but now our sins are taken away by the blood of Jesus. When the children of Israel entered the promised land, uh, they crossed the Jordan River. Well, God instructed them that the Ark of the Covenant was to be placed out in front, lifted high, so everyone could see it. And their, and their attention was to be drawn to that. Again, that Ark represented the power and presence of God. So, so you might say it was a returning. It was a returning of the power and presence of God back in the midst of the people. Now, why did it need to be returned? It needed to be returned because the Philistines had stolen it. 
The Philistines had taken the Ark of the Covenant, but what they discovered was every, every city that they put it in, plagues would break out. They thought, man, there's something wrong. We, we don't need that thing here. You know, it was in the wrong place. And so they just took it out of town and just parked it. And David, when David became king, he said that my first act is to restore the presence and power of God back to the people. And so, because he said in that verse we read him ago, it was not sought after during the days of Saul. Isn't that kind of sad that all those times that that ark was gone, Saul was the king and the ark wasn't even missed. The ark wasn't even missed. I mean, it, it was gone and wasn't even missed. To, to me, listen carefully, to me this represents the church today. They were perfectly content to go through the motions of worship and God wasn't even present there. Today I, I see a church, or, and I'm going to use the word big C, that's very content to go through the motions of church every Sunday without any indication of God's power and presence in that service. Now, let me ask you a question. Don't answer it out loud, but answer it to yourself. How long has it been since you've been to church and you left church and went home and you saw something in church that day, you experienced something in that church that day that wasn't in the bulletin, it wasn't planned, but it could only be accounted for that the presence of God was in that service that day? The only way to account for what you saw and what you experienced was the, the mighty power and presence of God. Let me ask another question. How long has it been since before you came to church you prayed for an experience like that? You know, I think as a church, when people come to our church, we owe them an encounter with God. Not just a sermon, not just a song, but we owe people an encounter with God. Why? Because God says, where two or more gather together in my name, there I'm going to be in, your, in their midst. God can't be in, in our midst without releasing his presence and his power in some way because God is all power. You know, P Paul certainly felt like he owed people experience with God when he preached. Listen to what he said it, it, uh, in the 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 4. He, he writes these words. He says, And my speech and my preaching were not in persuasive words of human wisdom. Boy, a lot of people love to come to church and hear persuasive words of human wisdom. Oh, isn't our pastor eloquent? Isn't our pastor wonderful? He uses stupendous edifice instead of big building. He is so, he is so, 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 so. Some of these guys could hold the phones, could hold the citywide crusade in the phone booth. There's no anointing on their life. People don't need to hear eloquent words of wisdom. They need to encounter the living God. So listen to what he says. And he said, my speech and my preaching was not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration, but in demonstration of the Spirit, of the Spirit and with power. I have a theory as to why people don't come to church. It's just my theory, uh, but I think most unchurched people would agree with me. It's not real complex. It's very simple. You know why people don't come to church? Because they've been, they've been to church, 
And they didn't see any evidence of, the, of a living God. They saw no ev evidence of a supernatural power that can only come from God. See, you cannot accurately represent God without representing his power. And what did he tell his disciples to do? He said, you go preach the gospel of the kingdom and I will confirm it with signs that follow. Our obedience to God releases his presence and his presence releases his power. So, revival is God coming and manifesting himself through his power and through his presence. But it begins with a desire Look what David did. David got his, he checked with all of his leaders, checked with his people. His desire was to bring back that presence of God. So revival begins with a desire. Are you tired of going through the motions? Are you tired of coming to church Sunday after Sunday and not seeing anything at all that would remind you of a living God? When you get to that place, you're saying, I don't want this anymore. I want, I want God. I want to encounter the living God then you start with a desire. It comes from the leadership. It comes from the pastor. It comes from the leadership of the church. And then down in verse four, it says, and you know what? And then the people agreed with that. Pastor can't bring revival to a church. Uh, leadership alone cannot bring revival to the church. It takes the people, everybody crying out to God to say, God, we're tired of business as usual. We cry out in unity to God. God, forgive us. We're going through the motions. So it begins with the right uh, desire. David had the right desire, but he used the wrong method. Let's, let's look at... Um, let's, I'm going to read the, uh, chapter, verse 7 of that same chapter. They carried the ark of God in a new cart from the house of Abinadad, Uzzah, as I call him, and then Ahau. And they, drove, and, they, and they drove the cart. David and all of Israel was celebrating before, the, before God and with all their might, even with songs and lyre and harps and tambourines. They, they were having, they were throwing a fit. They were just having a good time. Verse 9, and when they came to the threshing floor of uh, Sidon, Uza, or Uzza, pronounced both ways. He put his hand up on the ark because the oxen nearly was upset. In other words, it, the, the, it was tilting over. And the anger of the Lord burned against him. And he struck him down because he put his hand on the ark. And he died there before God. That sounds like a very harsh thing to do. I mean, I think he was trying to do the right thing. But you see, God had to get through to the people that if you want his blessings, you do things his way. You don't do it the worldly way. Today, we're trying to usher in the presence of God by, by, by worldly ways, by, by gimmicks and by fleshly promotions. And God says, I won't do that. I will not bring my presence unless you do it my way. And, and David, that got David's attention. So David sat there for months and finally... Finally, in the next chapter, the second verse, he's, then, then David said, No one is to carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord chose them to carry the ark of God and to minister to him forever. <clears throat> so God's ways won't work. Church, did you hear me? God's ways, I mean, I'm sorry, the world's ways will not work. 
God's not going to bless those gimmicks, those fleshly promotions. If we want his presence, we're going to have to do it, and we're going to have to seek it God's way. Excuse me. <clears throat> you see, re <clears throat> revival is simply a sovereign act of God's grace. Sovereign act of God's grace, but God operates through humility. The Bible says God's grace comes through humility. And so if we want revival, we do it God's way, and we do it with through humility. <clears throat> this is what I've discovered. A lot of churches and a lot of denominations want revival, but they want it their way. You know why they want it their way? So they can get the credit. Oh, Baptists, we'd love to have revival. We better do it the Baptist way. You know, I've been in, I've been in a few revivals in my life. And the one I remember one, there was a man that, uh, oddly enough, he and I could uh, share, we could share testimonies. Um, I got saved when I was 20 years old in Sulphur Springs, Texas. My mother was a drunk. We lived in roach-infested uh, rent houses. Um, I later uh, got saved when I was 20 years old. I attended East Texas State University. I married a woman named Martha, and she collected Coca-Cola. This man was saved in Sulphur Springs, Texas when he's 20 years old. His father was an alcoholic. They lived in those rent houses that roach-infested. He got saved at 20. He went, to, he went to college at East Texas State University he, to be a preacher and like me, and he married a woman named Martha, and she likes Coca-Cola. So I called him one day. I said, Clark, if you ever asked to come give your testimony and you can't do it, call me, and I'll come give it for you. <laughs> but there was a tremendous anointing on that man, tremendous anointing. His church led the Southern Baptist Convention in baptisms from Roswell, New Mexico. Roswell, New Mexico is not exactly a metropolitan area. They baptized 1,350 people in one year in that church. So I invited him to come and speak in our church in Oklahoma. Our church would sleep about 1,000 on a, on a good day. But uh, we got to the point where we were putting chairs back in the back we, of the balcony. We were putting chairs back in the back of the auditorium. Well, when Clark came in, he, he, he preached uh, four days. He, he preached Sunday morning through Wednesday night. Uh, those chairs were completely full. Every single service, they were full. At the end of four nights of revival, I baptized 42 adults. Most churches won't baptize, won't baptize 42 people in a year. Most Baptist churches will not baptize 42 people in a year. I baptized 42 people and four, 42 adults. When it was over, I was criticized for bringing him in. They said, well, you shouldn't have brought him here. He, now, listen to this. I said, did he preach something that was wrong? No, no, listen. This is what they said. He wasn't Baptist enough. His church wasn't in the association. Folks, it's, I mean, it's stupid. I want to cry, but I... So I said to him, look, if it, let me just tell you what's going on here. I didn't invite him here on the basis of his pedigree. I'd, inv I'd invited him here on the basis of anointing, and if you didn't see that, you're spiritually blind. But from that time on, I had people in that church wanting to get rid of me because I brought somebody in that wasn't, quote, Baptist enough. God help us. Our next revival will come when, not only when we 
seek it, when we humble ourselves before God, and when we do it God's way, but when we prepare a place for God. Look at uh, chapter 15, listen to verse 1. Now David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place. He prepared a place for the ark of God, and he pitched a tent for it. God comes when we prepare a place for him, but it's not a building. The Bible says God doesn't dwell in buildings that are made by human hands. The Bible says God dwells in the heart. And we, when we present God a clean heart, a heart that's confessed sin, we're not holding on to sin, we're not harboring sin, <clears throat> we're not harboring grudges against our, our neighbors. You know, there's people not in church this morning because somebody in this church offended them at one point. I know that's true because it's true of all churches. When we get right with each other, when we get right with God, God will come. And if we don't listen to me, I'm going to speak prophetically for a moment. He will pass us by. He will remove the candlestick and take it someplace else. Next, when revival comes, it will not come unresisted. There'll be some that will resist it. L listen to uh, 15th chapter, 29th verse. It happened when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came back to the city of David that uh, Michael, the, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and she saw David leaping and celebrating and she despised him in her heart. That was David's wife. And when she saw the, the, the massive celebration he was doing, I mean, he was dancing for the Lord. He was having, the flesh will always war against the spirit. And there's enough people in your church that's still in the flesh that when the spirit comes, they're going to war against it. And they're going to reject it. And I'll tell you why. Because the, the, the biggest thing that Satan uses to prevent revival to come to a church is fear. Well, what's going to happen here? What's going to happen? Uh, I'll tell you what happens. When revival comes, it gets messy. It can get messy when revival comes. Why? Why? Because not everybody receives the Spirit the same way. You might have somebody over here laughing. You might have somebody back there crying. You might have somebody like David over in the corner throwing a fit. But you see, we want, to argue, we want it organized and we want it controlled. And some people had rather have organized control than a revival. Do you want organized control? Let me tell you where it is. It's in that cemetery back here behind the building. You're going to find perfect order back there. You're going to find perfect unity back there, but you're not going to find life back there. If you want to find life, go to the nursery. It gets messy in the nursery. Well, what's going to happen? Are we going to lose control? You know what? I, the best thing that could happen to most churches is to lose control. You know why? Because when we lose control, God takes control. But God won't take control until we give him control. But Satan will come along and say, oh man, you got to watch this stuff. Now it's going to get out of hand, I'm telling you. Just remember this, God is not the author of confusion. You have to trust the pastor that when revival comes, 
the pastor will make sure that it's not it's done decently in order. And the Bible says that God has not given us a spirit of fear. You don't have to be afraid. I'm much more afraid of God passing us by than I'm afraid of him coming. I want him to come. I want him to come. So here's some little tests that I've given this. And uh, how, do, how do you test a, a emotion sometimes? I mean, when revival breaks out, there's going to be emotion. There's going to be emotion. You might as well get ready for that. It's not going to be business as usual. Someone said, well, our church is status quo, but your status is nothing to quo about. Believe me. So here's what I do. Those times I've been in revival and I've seen the emotion, this, this is, these are the three the things that I used to, uh, to, to judge. Number one is this. Real godly emotion will never interfere with the preaching of the Word of God. It won't do it. I remember being in a revival in Toronto, Canada many years ago. It was called the Toronto Blessing. And, um, you know, sometimes we'll go to a meeting. We'll say, anybody here from another state, another county? They ask how many here from another country. You know how many countries were uh, represented in that little meeting that night? 22 countries. 22 countries had come because they heard there was a revival going on in Toronto. And I saw some stuff, I thought it was just plain weird. But I saw some stuff that I believe was a, a move of God. But one of the things that happened in the revival was a spirit of laughter. People would just get to laughing, and, and they didn't have particularly have a reason, but they just get to laughing. And um, so I sat behind two women that had that, quote, spirit of laughter. And while this preacher was trying to preach, they were sitting there laughing. And finally, I, just, I, quit just, I quit praying for them. I started praying against them. And finally, one of them stopped. And I heard her say to the other woman, why did you stop laughing? Because my side hurts. Well, hallelujah, <laughs> finally. But, but listen to me again. When real revival comes and emotion comes, it will not distract from the preaching of the word. It won't do it. Holy Spirit's not the author of confusion. Number two, when revival comes and emotion comes, it's going to flow with the service that brought it there. It's going to flow with the service that's already in, in, in uh, progress. It's not going to be a group over there doing something, a group over there doing something, a group over here doing something. It's going to flow. The Holy Spirit's going to flow with the group that's there. And uh, then number, number three is this. Genuine, genuine emotion will not call attention to itself. It'll call attention to God. When I was at Highland, we had a couple of ladies that would love to just, during the worship time, they'd just come down to the front. We had a, a larger altar, I mean, a larger area here. And they just liked to dance around. <clears throat> and it was, it was beautiful, really. I mean, I, I, I was impressed. But we had some people that, you know, kind of kind of saw. And they didn't like it too much. So I went to the two ladies and I said, look, I think what you're doing is beautiful. I think you're dancing to the Lord. David danced to the Lord. His wife didn't like it. So I said, let me make a suggestion. Why don't you go back to the back of the service and do it? Now, if you'll go back there and do it, you'll do it unto the Lord, but he'll see it. Nobody else will be offended by it. And they said, that sounds great. We'll do this. So, so they went back there. It was beautiful. 
had a guy come to me one time and said, I don't like people raising their hands in my church. I said, they're not raising them to you. Get over it. <laughs> I said, if they ever start raising them to you, I'll stop it. But I said, why don't you come sit on the front row with me? Sit on the front row, you won't have to see it. <laughs> right? Isn't it amazing how we can get things confused? The Bible says lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. But in a Baptist church for years, it caused dissension. Satan is so smart, he divided the church over four fingers. You know, when young people would give the one-way sign in church, oh, look at those precious young people. Oh, they're giving the one-way sign. Bless their heart. But then you open these other fingers, ooh, all at once you're lifting your hands in church. I had a, I had a preacher friend tell me one time, somebody raises their hands in my church, I'm going to tell them where the bathroom is just down the hall. God's going to remove the candlestick. And you can't buy revival when God removes the candlestick. <clears throat> you listen, you need to be real, real careful when you're criticizing somebody else's form of worship. David's wife criticized his, and God struck her barren. And for a king's wife to be barren and not raising up godly seed for the king, that was about his worst thing that could possibly happen to a king's wife. God struck her barren because she criticized her husband's form of worship. You know, as I've looked around church, I see some people that uh, they love to do this. I, personally, I've never been much of a hand raiser, but I've, I've preached on five different continents, and I discovered this is a universal sign of surrender in all five of those continents. When you're lifting your hands like this, you're surrendering to the Lord. I'm kind of a holy post. <laughs> I kind of just stand there, you know, acquiesce. But <laughs> but you know, I have an idea. Some of you probably acted up kind of strange at the football game Friday night, didn't you? <laughs> Did you shout a little, jump around a little bit? This don't bring that excitement to the church, right? Bible get contagious. What's the outcome? What's the outcome of this? Well, let's just look and see. The Bible says that um, chapter 16, verse 4, and he appointed some of the Levites to ask, uh, ministers before the ark of the Lord, even to celebrate and to be thankful and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. In verse uh, 8, it says, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people, sing unto him, sing praises unto him, speak of his wonders, glory his, of his holy name. Let the earth of those who seek the Lord be glad. Seek the Lord and, uh, and his strength. Seek his face continually. What's going on here is praise. When revival breaks out in your church, praise is going to break out in your church. Verse 23, sing unto the Lord, all ye earth. Proclaim his good, his good tidings, his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O family. Uh, ascribe to the Lord glory to his strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory to, uh, due to his name. Now, before this, God wasn't even there. They didn't know he was there. He was gone. But when the presence of God came back, Praise happened. 
So what's the outcome of God coming to your church and manifesting his glory and his power? Praise will break out like you've never thought of. It will be unbelievable. And you know what praise brings? Praise brings more revival. Revival brings more of the power of God. Uh, you're going to find, you'll discover this, that lost people are going to get saved. Saved people are going to get delivered. Saved people are going to get healed. And uh, your church is going to be blessed and God's going to be honored. Amen or oh me? Do you want that? I'll tell you something, you let, the, you let it be known that the presence of God is in this building and people will drive from Temple to get here. When I was at Highland, we had people from Temple, we had people from Hillsboro. People want to experience the presence of God. That's what they want to experience. And you know what? God wants them to experience it. But we have to do it God's way. The altars are open. If you want to come and kneel and, or stand and say, God, restore your presence. Restore your power. We're hungry for you, Lord. We don't want to keep doing business as usual. We want your presence and we want your power to come and fill our place. I'm not saying it hasn't been here, but I'm saying it could be here in greater measure, believe me. Amen? I'll be over there. If you need prayer, I'll be happy to pray with you, love to pray with you. If you're here and you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, I'd love to talk to you about that. I'd love to pray with you about that. If you have any other problems, health issues, something that you need personal prayer, uh, I'll be right over there. The altar is open if you sincerely want to seek the Lord. If you sincerely want to see God's power and presence in a way you've never seen it before. God's anxious to do it for you. Let's do it his way, okay? God bless you.